Barkley, and welcome to the Andrea Barkley Show, where we talk about food, fitness, family, and everything involved in leading a happy, healthy, and fulfilling life. Uh, if you followed me for a while, you know that I love to read, and I love to read about challenges I'm facing. And one thing personally that I've really struggled with for many years is bloating, and I know a lot of you have too. And I mean severe, I look six months pregnant kind of bloating. It is embarrassing, right? Because I'm a fitness person, and why am I so bloated? But um, I do a lot of books in my car, and my Audible account recently recommended a book called The Bloated Belly Whisperer. What a great name to me. And the book really surprised me. The author kind of gives some surprising advice and even the cold shoulder to things like supplements, probiotics, eating too many raw vegetables, an overall one-size-fits-all approach to gut health. And so I'm super excited to have my guest on the show today. So welcome to The Andrew Barkley Show, the author of The Bloated Belly Whisperer and her new book called Regular, Tamara Duker-Froyman. Tamara, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrea. Thanks for inviting me. I'm so excited. So tell me, how did you become known as The Bloated Belly Whisperer? Well... <laughs> Um, it all started about maybe 13 years ago. I got my first job in a gastroenterology practice as a dietitian, and I was all ready for my first day of work and I was prepared and I did all my book research and I thought I was going to see Crohn's disease and, you know, all sorts of like things that I'd read about in my textbooks. And then patient after patient started coming in complaining of bloating. They wanted help with bloating. Yes. And I swear I had never even heard the term before. So like, are you not bloated? Like, have you, were you not ever bloated at that time? I mean, if I had been, I like, I didn't know to call it that, put it that way. Like okay. I'm sure there would have been times that maybe my belly stuck out more, but I don't have like pain or discomfort. And so like, I didn't really have those types of issues. Right. And so like, it just wasn't a concept that was like very familiar to me. And certainly it wasn't anything I learned about in like three years of graduate school. Wow. So I just started having to like ask patient after patient, like describe what you mean by that. Like, what does that word mean? Yeah. And it became really apparent really quickly that these, all these patients were not actually talking about the same thing at all. Yeah. So some people were talking about like a visible distension, kind of like what you were talking about, Andrea, that they look pregnant. I hear that all the time. I look and you know, the gradation would be four months or six months or nine months. Right. Um, and sometimes when they looked distended or looked bloated, sometimes they would actually feel really uncomfortable, full pressure. That's and it. Then sometimes people would say, I look really distended, but it's not uncomfortable. Like it's very soft. Like I can push it in. It's just like, why does my belly give out like that? Right. And then other people were talking about bloated and they didn't actually look distended at all. They just felt really uncomfortably over full, sometimes in a way that was like not commensurate with what they'd eaten. It's like I eat three bites of food. I feel like I've eaten Thanksgiving dinner. I don't look distended, but I feel bloated. And so, you know, over the months and years, as I started in this practice, I was like learning how to ask the questions I needed to ask to figure out, oh, they're bloated like that person and that person's bloated like so-and-so and kind of yeah. creating these like categories or archetypes of bloating so that when patients would say that they were bloated, I could kind of start to home in on like, what are we dealing with here? Is this like a constipation issue? Is this an acid reflux issue? Is this a slow stomach issue? Like what is going on? And as I kind of codified all these different types in my head, it kind of came time to start writing it down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and I wonder, like, why isn't it talked about more? And if you do a quick Google on how to not be bloated or how to reduce bloating, there's so much conflicting information. And your book is so freaking comprehensive. It's like, could be a lot of stuff. It could be a lot of stuff. So let me ask you this. When someone suffers from bloating, right? And it's so bad that their audible account is like, I might have a solution for you. <laughs> this is the book, by the way, you guys. Um, where should someone start? I mean, look, I think obviously I would say my book, right? Like yeah. the way that I wrote the book is it starts with a quiz, as you know, because you've read the book. Um, and the quiz is really designed to kind of replicate what I would do if I were in conversation with you. It's really trying to narrow down like, the top two or three likely culprits. And the first thing that I'm trying to differentiate myself and that I'm that my quiz tries to differentiate. And by the way, the quiz is available for free online on my website, the bloated well, the bloated You don't have to buy the book to take the quiz. Is I'm trying to figure out, do I think that your bloating is a stomach issue or an intestines issue? That's the first kind of differentiation that we've got to figure out. Is it upper GI problem or a lower GI problem? 
Right. And once you can figure that out, and it's not too hard to figure it out, because I want to understand, like, is it associated with gas? Yes or no? And if so, is it a burping gas or a farting gas? Like that alone kind of tells me like stomach or intestine, right? Like upper or lower, or is it associated with any other upper GI symptoms like acid reflux, heartburn, nausea, or is it more like associated with like farting, lower abdominal crampy pain, like underneath the belly button? Is it alleviated with pooping, right? These are the things that are leading me to sort of a more intestinal cause versus a stomach cause. So the first thing that you as a person, as a patient want to try to figure out with on your own or with the help of the quiz is like, what organ is causing this bloating? stomach or my intestine. Yeah. And actually that would be a really good question for yourself. Is it, is it burping or farting? Is it from the top or the bottom? Right. Is that a a great giveaway? No gas at all. Right. Or no, what does it mean if it's no gas at all? Bloating has gas. Right. So what if it's no if it gas? No gas at all. I mean, to me, that's a clue, right? So some people, like for example, there's some people with something called functional dyspepsia or with um, gastroparesis, which is a slow to empty stomach. They don't necessarily have gas. They have a lot of upper GI issues. They might have nausea. They might have reflux. They might feel full really, really quickly after eating or have a lot of pain, like kind of up top, right? Like your stomach's up here. <laughs> your yeah. stomach is very high up, and so that's where they're bloating and discomfort. It's very high up, and so and that's not necessarily associated with gas. Right. Um, and so, you know, the lack of gas also tells me something or, and some people like feel like they have a lot of gas, like, like they hear it, like the gassy noises or whatever, but they can't burp. Like, oh my God, I wish I could burp. I'm like, well, there's the problem. Like you, you need have to burp. normal gas. You need to burp, right? So like, <laughs> you know, so whether or not there's gas or whether or not you can expel the gas and where the gas is coming out of, these are all clues for someone like me to really help tease out where's the problem? What's the nature of the problem? Right, right. So you, you talk a lot about someone being FOS and that's either full of stool or full of something well, else. Really- <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Which is really true. So, and there are a lot of people who are totally irregular when they poop, right? And I'm a student of holistic nutrition. And my understanding is that you should be pooping every day. And if you're not pooping every day, that's a problem. So what to you is a healthy amount of pooping? And is it normal to go a long time without pooping? Well, a healthy amount is going to really depend on the person. Are you surprised that I said that, Andrea? You read my book. You know know. that like everything is so individual. It is. And I'm actually really glad that you say that because I hear, I hear people say like, oh, you should poop after every meal. Like that's the sign of a healthy gut. And it's like, that's wild to me. But I also know people who, who won't go for six or seven days and that's wild. Yeah. So I guess the first question to try to figure out what's normal is, do you even have a problem? In other words, like, does your pooping occupy any mind share whatsoever? Like if, if the frequency of pooping in your life does not impact, like, in other words, like you don't even know how frequently you poop. Cause like, you're never bothered. You never feel bloated. You're not uncomfortable. You're not gassy. Like you're not straining. You don't have any pain. Then whatever you're pooping is probably good enough because you're fine. Like you feel fine. Right. And then you could have somebody who poops, quote unquote, like an average or normal amount. Like maybe they poop twice a day or three times a day, which on paper seems like a good number or like within the range of what we would call normal. And they're miserable. Right. Like you could poop three times a day, but every time you go, it's like cramping and uncomfortable or it's really urgent or you feel like it's not complete. And so the number and the frequency of pooping tells me nothing about whether your poop habits are healthy. I also need to know about your subjective experience. In other words, is your pooping pattern a problem for you in terms of quality of life, pain, health, et cetera? And then if it is a problem for you, you know, is the frequency part of the problem? In other words, like, yeah, if you're going once every six days and like, in between pooping sessions, you actually feel perfectly fine. You don't look bloated. You're not gassy. Like I don't need you to do something different just so on paper, we can say you poop every three days. But if you poop every six days and you're a hot bloated mess, that's gassy and miserable and you can't like think of anything else, but your belly. Yeah. We got to increase that frequency. That's a problem. But if you're pooping every six days and you're not bloated and you're not even thinking about it or or worrying about it, then you shouldn't worry about it. I've had a couple of patients who poop once or twice a week. And when they go, they get a giant, massive, like satisfying (laughs) bowel movement, easy to come out, no straining. It feels like they've emptied their entire bowel. And in between those sessions, they feel completely fine. Wow. 
why do I need to micromanage their pooping? They I feel don't fine. Know. I think we've right? been told that we're supposed to do it, that that's the sign of like healthy yeah. gut transit or you're backed up. And then right. I had, I had, uh, I knew a, a functional chiropractor and she went said to me that she had this belief that, um, maybe if you don't poop so much, it's because your body is really good at absorbing all of those nutrients. Well, don't forget fiber isn't nutrient. Like no body absorbs fiber. If you're a mammal, you cannot absorb fiber by definition. Right. And I know you and your listeners are very health conscious people. You guys are probably eating fairly high fiber diets yeah. right? or you're trying to like Absolutely. that is your goal. That's healthy. All the fiber that goes in must come out. So if you or someone like who eats a really healthy high fiber diet are coming to me and I take a diet history and I see that you're probably eating 35, 40, 45. Sometimes, I mean, I see a lot more than that, 50 grams of fiber a day and you're pooping, you know, even every other day. I think that's probably a problem for you right. because because all the fiber that goes in must come out, people on extremely high fiber diets are probably going to start feeling really uncomfortable if they don't poop every day. And frankly, Andrea, many people who eat super high fiber diets will be uncomfortable if they only poop once a day. Like a really high fiber diet often means that you have to be eliminating several times. Whereas to answer the original question, what's normal or what's, what's okay, if you're not eating a high fiber diet, like if you're eating maybe like, you know, 16 or 20, like 16 grams of fiber on average per day, you might feel perfectly fine if you poop every other day. And that keeps up with the amount of fiber you eat. And like, that's enough and that's sufficient and you feel fine. That's perfectly healthy and fine. But if you're eating a ton of fiber, you're probably going to get really uncomfortable if you're not keeping up with it poop wise. In fact, one of the most common things I see in my practice are people, very health conscious people who eat extremely high fiber diets, who poop every day, sometimes more than once. And I have to break the news to them that they're completely FOS. And then they don't believe me because they're like, I go every day, my poops are big. And I'm like, you don't have to believe me. Go get an x-ray. I'm right. And they go get an x-ray and they are full of stool and they can't believe it. They're shocked. They're like, how could I be constipated? I go every day. And I'm like, I know, but I- So what do they do? What do they just take some laxatives and get it out? So, I mean, it depends, right? I mean, if the issue is fiber overload, you have two choices. Well, I guess three choices. Put less roughage in, get more stool out, Mm. or some combination of less in and more out, right? And so that could be, I love my diet. I don't want to change my diet. I'll just take some magnesium so I can get an extra poop a day. And some people want to do that. Some people are very loath to do that. Some people are like, oh, no, I don't want to do that. Let me change my diet. It's not like I put them on a low fiber diet or anything, but it's like maybe instead of like two giant roughagey salads a day, maybe for you salads are a half portion, like an appetizer. And then you get more of your fiber, veggies and fruits from more soups and smoothies and sort of what I call smaller particle size type of fiber. I talk a lot about this in my second book, Regular, Mm. about kind of modifying the particle size of the fiber in your diet so that you can still enjoy a healthy, nutritious diet when you are tending towards constipated related bloating, um, but not overloading the system with just more roughage and more bulky volumetric fiber that your body's just not able to get out of to empty fast enough. Like if you can't keep up with your fiber, you're going to be really bloated, even if you poop every day. Is there a standard amount of grams that you recommend a fiber? Because I think then what the normal recommendation is like 20, 25 grams of fiber a day. Yeah. So the normal recommendations are kind of based on just like, you know, general metabolic cardiovascular health. Like, you know, the guidelines are basically 14 grams of fiber for every thousand calories in your diet. And so, you know, for like the standard female diet, however, they came up with those calories, that's like about 25 grams. grams for women and 38 grams for men. I will tell you that that tells me nothing about you as an individual digest whether that's the right number or not. I have some patients who are very constipated that if they had 25 grams of fiber a day, they would be like, nothing would come out. They need to eat 35 grams a day to even have things move. And then I have some patients who, you know, if they eat more than like 10 to 15 grams, they're running to the bathroom with diarrhea because they're too fiber sensitive and like fiber like overstimulates them and they really can't tolerate 20 grams, let alone 25 grams. And so there's kind of the number on paper that's like a health guideline for like cardiovascular metabolic health. But in terms of digestive tolerance, I don't have a set number in my head. I have to look at the person who's sitting across from me and figure out like, what do you need to feel (laughs) good in your life? And what is the healthiest 
amount of fiber, type of fiber that you can comfortably tolerate. One of the things that surprised me in your book and really spoke to me is I like to eat for nutrition first. And if I have a craving or something, I will always say, how can I convert this into a healthier, healthier alternative as I coach my clients to do as well. And I always think like, what's my green going to be? What's my red? What's my color? What are my things? And so in your book, The Bloated Belly Whisper, I was very shocked to hear you say like, you can't, that's a lot of roughage for your gut to break down. That's hard. Right. And because I learned that the more like complex the vegetable is, the more full of life and nutrition it is. And that makes sense. And also what you say makes sense, because if that's a very complex thing, that's hard for your gut to break down. And I had a real sad um, moment <laughs> because one of my favorite things to do is when I'm, you know, when you're so hungry, you just go in your fridge and you're like, ah, and you just start eating stuff. So one of my favorite things to just ah start eating are raw carrots. And I buy the big whole carrots. I do not peel them. I just rinse them <laughs> off. And I, while I'm like making my dinner, I'm like Bugs Bunny over here. And you very specifically are like, look, if you're knocking back raw carrots, like it's your job, you might want to gently cook those carrots. And um, I don't know, that really spoke to me because I eat so many huge bowls of salad. And then when I've traveled and been to all over the world, no one is knocking back six cups of goji berry kale salad. No one is. <laughs> Why are we? Yeah. I mean, look, you're bringing up such an important thing that I deal with a lot of my practices. You know, there is this, um, there's this idea like that, like high fiber diets are objectively healthy. They are, they're objectively good for you. They're nutrient dense. I have nothing bad to say about a high fiber diet. And just because something is objectively nutritious and health promoting, it doesn't mean it will feel good for you digestively. Right. In other words, it could be promoting health and preventing cancer and, you know, making you live till you're 120, but you're going to be bloaty and miserable and crampy until you live to, until you're 120. Like oh you man, live what's the happy medium? What's the happy medium? The happy medium is different for everyone. So the goal that I have for all of my patients is what is the healthiest diet that you can comfortably tolerate, Andrea? What is the amount of salad or carrots that you can comfortably tolerate? And that might be, you know, None. It might be one raw carrot and one small salad a day. It might be, I don't know what that is, but our job together as, you know, sort of client and, and nutritionist is let's figure that out together. Like yeah. let's figure out what makes you feel you're eating a, like a healthy enough diet that you feel good about it psychologically, but that you're not punishing yourself and making yourself suffer because you feel like if you don't eat, you know, two pounds of raw carrots a day or kale, like somehow you're like you're a bad person or you have a bad diet, right? Like we have to find yeah, for sure. a way to live. Yeah, we have and to find a way to live. One of the things, so in, in one of Tamara's chapters, she, so what happens is when you read her book, um, she has you take a quiz and wherever you score highest, which, and I love this advice, just go into that chapter and do a little detective work. Does that resonate with you? Does your intuition say that could be you? If so, move on. Or if so, you know, follow the protocol. If not, move on to the next one. And in one of the protocols I write about, it talked about um, slowing down your amount of food. And when you talk about slowing down your meals, it's real slow in terms of like maybe breakfast actually is a few bites at a time and it could span over a couple of hours. Mm. And so you're talking about like the grazing, like the grazing, the grazing approach rather than the meal approach, right? So that's for people with a specific condition called abdominophrenic dyssynergia or APD. And that's a really interesting condition that like when I wrote the book, you know, five years ago, like nobody had heard of it. And now it's getting a lot more airtime in the GI world. Mm. Um, this is a condition where it's really like a neuromuscular dysfunction. And so, you know, you're a trainer, so you know the diaphragm, right? You have this like the muscle, the diaphragm that kind of separates your abdominal cavity, like the... The, the abdominal organs with your lung cavity up top and your esophagus and everything up here. And what's and your diaphragm 
you know, it kind of like rests on top of the abdominal cavity. And what's supposed to happen is when you start eating, your stomach is right underneath the diaphragm. When you start eating and like the stomach starts to fill with food, the diaphragm is supposed to relax and lift up to expand the abdominal cavity, to make the abdominal cavity bigger, to accommodate a stomach that is starting to eat and fill up with food. Right. Okay. That's what's supposed to happen. There are some people with this condition, APD, where the paradoxical thing is happening, where your stomach starts to eat. And instead of the diaphragm lifting to make more space in the abdominal cavity, the diaphragm starts to contract and push down. And all of a sudden now your abdominal cavity is smaller. It has less space to accommodate a growing stomach. So then what does the body do to adapt to that? Oh my God, my abdominal cavity is smaller. The stomach is filling up with food. Where am I supposed to put this growing stomach? So the abdominal wall gives out. It just completely loses its tone and becomes very stretchy and lax so that the stomach can grow outwards because the diaphragm is not letting the abdominal cavity grow upwards. Why would, why would is, the diaphragm not make space for it? What would cause it to really... Why do nerves misfire, right? It's a nerve, like it's a nerve issue. It's like a misfiring nerve. Um, And so, you know, when that happens, people can have two sips of food or three bites of food. And all of a sudden that reflex kicks in the abdominal wall is like, oh, the stomach is stretching, give out like Thanksgiving. And people will look extremely pregnant after like a couple of bites. And so how do we manage? I mean, obviously like there's remedies for it. There's like, you know, physical therapy, diaphragmatic breathing, biofeedback, there's medications that are either muscle relaxants or um, uh, like nerve, like neuromodulators, like nerve modulating medications. Um, But diet wise, how do I manage it? Because, you know, like it's a nerve issue. It's not a food issue is I try to have you do sippy, grazy little nibbles because the more you eat, the more distended you're going to look. And if you can kind of eat and kind of stretch out your meals and sort of more, I, I tell people it's more like a cocktail party vibe, right? Where you're just kind of like nibbling on like a meal, like while you're working, like over the course of an hour or two, the less you put in your belly all at once, the less exaggerated that distension is going to look. Now, again, that's a kind of bloating that's not painful at all. Right. It's very distressing psychologically for people to feel like they ate something and literally somebody is giving up their seat on the subway because they look so pregnant. It's very distressing, (laughs) but that is a non-painful bloat. That is a non-gas bloat. There's no gas in there. I call it a food baby because it's literally you're pregnant with the food you just ate. And then after the stomach empties, stomach goes right back in. And then the second you eat something else. So that's kind of like an in and out every couple hours, whenever you eat. Whereas if you graze and nibble, it can really mitigate the severity of that bloating. Does it eventually go away? Does your diaphragm eventually train to lift up and make room for that stomach? I mean, you have to retrain it. Like it's not going to go away on its own, but it is treatable. And so again, that's something that really needs to be diagnosed because like, I can't tell you, oh, eat this food and your diaphragm will learn how to do its sure, thing. Like sure. somehow along the way, your nerves started misfiring and sending the wrong signal and they have to be retrained. And that's what biofeedback is about. That's what diaphragmatic breathing is about. Um, and there are, like I said, there's medications that some doctors will prescribe to also just like stop the weird abnormal nerve responses. I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like if you made an appointment with a standard gastroenterologist and said, I think I have this, what's the acronym again? APD. APD. If you went in and said, I read this book, I think I might have APD. (laughs) It doesn't sound like, especially if you said, I, you know, this is relatively new, it's within the last five years. I feel like a a traditional gastroenterologist might not offer that as a solution or offer that. So I as think a, it depends. Like really? gastroenterologists who specialize in IBS, irritable bowel syndrome and functional GI disorders really are probably going to be familiar with it because there has been a lot more literature about it. And like, you know, there's a, a bunch of papers that are being kind of like published about it. And so people who follow that space in gastroenterology will will probably have heard of it. Um, Whether or not they know how to treat it, I don't know. I think if you go to a gastroenterologist who specializes more in like inflammatory bowel disease, like Crohn's disease, colitis, like they're not going to know about that. Um, And so again, you also have to recognize as a patient, like gastroenterology is a really big, broad field and different GI doctors do specialize in different things. If you have Crohn's disease, you're probably going to want to go to a doctor who's like a brilliant genius at Crohn's disease and and inflammation because there's so many medications and they know the ins and outs of that. And like, you want that kind of doctor. If you've got like 
you know, a pelvic floor muscle dysfunction, like, you know, dysmotility, whatever, you want a doctor who really understands that. And, and it's not always the same doctor. And so it's also helpful for patients when you're kind of seeking out care to call the office and be like, Hey, does, you know, if there's multiple doctors in the practice, like which, if any of the doctors in your practice, you know, have expertise in such and such condition or in this type of thing or in bloating, because you know, you need, you need to find the right fit. Right. It sounds to me though, that like, this is something that really does require, I mean, I think you can really do a lot of any work yourself. You know, you can get this book, your book, and you can dive in. And I think, you know, I dove in and I did quite a bit of what you recommended and it did help really quickly. And then I really wanted a big salad. <laughs> yeah, I really just wanted a big salad. And, but that retraining your brain or your nerves, that's something that I think requires outside expertise. Absolutely. And so in my book, because I deal with like, what, like 10 different conditions or whatever it is, you know, you'll find that some of the conditions you can completely manage on your own and never step foot into a doctor. Like some people with like, um, I guess this is more my new book, regular, like there's a chapter in IBS, like diarrhea, predominant IBS. There's some patients who like, will do what I say with regard to what I call soluble fiber therapy, and they will be better in three days and they never need to see a doctor. And then there's going to be some patients who have, you know, other types of conditions like you just described, the abdominophrenic dyssynergia or, you know, the, you know, the, the nerve, the neuromuscular stuff. There's no dietary fix for that. There's there's dietary interventions that can lessen the severity of the symptom, but the diet is not a fix. And so there are certain conditions that I can't help you with. And, and part of my job as a dietitian is to be honest with my patients, which is there is a dietary fix for what you're describing, or there's a dietary intervention and here's what it is. And sometimes like there's a condition in bloated belly that I call aerophagia, which is swallowing air. Um, and they're burping obsessively like sailor, loud, incessant burping, belching. There's no diet that I can put you on to stop you from swallowing air. It's not like, oh, if you just give this up. This is dairy, literally you'll... people swallowing air. And why are they swallowing air? All sorts of reasons. Some people are mouth breathers when they sleep. Oh. And so while they're sleeping, their mouth breathe like mouth breathers tend to swallow more air. And, of course. and it can happen when you're sleeping. There's some people who like have a lot of like, I had this one patient recently who had like a lot of post nasal drip sinus allergy stuff. And during our session, as we're talking, he was obsessively like, yes, just like sniffling, like just subconsciously. Cause there's so much like drip. And every time think about it, Andrew, when you go like this, what do you do after you swallow? Yeah. You're swallowing your snot. And so what's happening is all these extra like duplicative swallows from like, you know, sinus stuff, like allergy stuff was causing him to swallow air all the time. And so it's not, an, and so it's not always one thing, but the point is if you are swallowing air and I meet with you and I determine that you're swallowing air, I'm going to say to you, look, I think I, good news is I think I know what's going on here. And I think I know what the problem is. Bad news is I'm not the one who's going to be able to help you fix it sure. because there's no elimination diet I can put you on. That's going to make you stop swallowing air. But I can say like, Let's try to figure out when it might be happening so we know who to send you to. If it's an allergy issue, let's send you to an allergist or an ENT doctor. If it's like, you know, if it's happening when you're asleep, you know, let's maybe like, like send you to like a sleep specialist or an ENT to figure out like, are there like, you know, devices that you can wear, like, you know, to like open up your nasal passageway so you don't mouth breathe. Like, what so about I mouth can... tape? Do you, are, are you in on mouth tape? I don't know enough about it, honestly. Like, like I said, I'm a dietitian. Like I don't sure. recommend like non-diet stuff. I sure. like talk to the people who know about that stuff. Like, it's just like not my scope of expertise and I don't practice beyond my scope of expertise. Love that. Um, and so, you know, I think I can sometimes help people identify what the problem is, but there's not a dietary solution for every single thing. I know that we're tempted as people who like care about natural health and holistic health to want to think that diet can fix everything. And as a dietitian, I wish diet could fix everything, yeah. but sometimes it can't. And it's also important to acknowledge the limitations of when diet is just not going to be an adequate solution for you. In the APD, is that it? In APD? APD, it's not going to be a fix. With pelvic floor dysfunction, people who have a pelvic floor issue and literally like their pelvic floor muscles do not coordinate properly to allow a poop to really completely come out. So they are chronically extremely backed up. All I can do with you on diet is to like not have you fiber overloaded because you cannot poop adequately. And so I can help you pull back on your fiber, but typically those patients laxatives don't work. Like 
even like heavy duty prescription laxatives, they really need like pelvic floor physical therapy. And that's the fix. And so I'm not going to fix you with a diet. I might help you make the symptoms less bad and less severe with your diet. Right. But there's some conditions that do not have a dietary fix. There's a diarrhea that I talk about in my book regular called bile acid diarrhea. Bile acid diarrhea, no dietary fix. There's no fix for it. Your body is just like either secreting excess bile or your body can't reabsorb bile back in when it's done using it. And that just causes a diarrhea. And it doesn't matter what you eat, you're going to have it and you need medication. And so there are just some conditions that diet won't fix, but there are many, 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 many conditions that diet will either fix or make a lot better. And that's what I do. How do you find a pelvic floor physical therapist specific to bloating, constipation or diarrhea or any of those things? Great question. So, you know, there are, there's a whole subspecialty called pelvic, you know, like pelvic floor physical therapy. We've talked about it a lot on the show as it relates to um, pregnancy and childbirth. Would those be the same therapists? Um, potentially yes. You know, there's a website called pelvicrehab.com where you can kind of search by your state zip code, et cetera, and find practitioners near you that are trained in pelvic floor physical therapy. Um, so, you know, that's a way to get it. And like from a GI space, there's a couple of tests that GI doctors can do, um, to evaluate your pelvic floor function, because if you do have a pelvic floor issue, there are many different flavors of pelvic floor issues and, you know, having a more precise diagnosis that you can then bring to a pelvic floor therapist and be like, I was diagnosed with type one dyssynergia or hypertensive anal sphincter or whatever that the tests show that you have so that your pelvic floor physical therapist can really tailor a treatment for you. They're really terrific. They can do an amazing evaluation and kind of make their own assessments and judgments just based on a physical exam. But often it's also incredibly helpful for them to have objective test data and understand what the medical diagnosis is um, so they can be even more effective. And so, like I said, there are some specialized GI doctors who do the specialized pelvic floor testing, but not all doctors do the testing. So if you got to the chapter of my book and you felt like, oh, I think I sound like I have a pelvic floor issue, you're going to want to find a doctor who specializes in pelvic floor dysfunction. Interesting. Interesting. One of the main things you talk about in the book are FODMAPs. Can you give the listeners an overview of FODMAPs and what they are and why they could be problematic? Sure. So FODMAP is an acronym, F-O-D-M-A-P. And it's an acronym for F is for fermentable. So these are all types of carbohydrates that are fermentable by your gut microbes, like your gut microbiome. Um, and all FODMAPs are carbs. So like pure animal protein by definition will not have any FODMAPs, pure oil that has no carbs cannot have any FODMAPs, but anything that is a carbohydrate could potentially have a FODMAP. And then the O, D, M, and P are all kind of different, like Latin names for different types of fermentable carbohydrates. So the O stands for oligosaccharides. Those are kind of like certain types of, um, carbohydrates that are in, beans and Brussels sprouts and cashews and beets. And then the D is disaccharides, which is lactose, which is milk sugar. Um, The M is monosaccharides, which refers to fructose, which is natural fruit sugar. Um, And then the P stands for polyols. Polyols are also known as sugar alcohols. And those are things like sorbitol, mannitol, um, erythritol, anything that ends with an all. And those are both naturally occurring in certain fruits and veggies like avocados, cauliflower, very high in polyols. But then also they can be added um, to foods as sort of like a low calorie sweetener because they're not absorbable. Right. <laughs> um, and so that would be like, you know, all the like the keto products and like the low calorie, eat the whole pint ice creams, like those typically have a lot of sugar alcohols in them. So these are all kind of categories of sugars or, or fibers um, that are not digested well by humans that are extremely fermentable by gut bacteria. Right. So what does that mean? People who are susceptible to excess gas and gas related bloating or diarrhea may be triggered by eating some or many of these categories of carbohydrates because they're so fermentable. They have the potential to cause gas because some of these are really small molecules like fructose and polyols that don't get absorbed. They can draw water into the bowel like osmosis and cause diarrhea for some people. And so people with like bloating, gas, pain, diarrhea, um, like IBS, 
blanket, um, often find that certain FODMAPs can trigger their IBS symptoms or their just general GI symptoms. And so what we have are these protocols where we like for two weeks kind of take you, take all the FODMAPs away from you and see if you feel better. Mm -hmm. And if you do and your symptoms go away, then we know that at least one of those FODMAPs was bothering you. And then we can start systematically rechallenging family by family to figure out which one or which ones is it, and then figure out how do we navigate that. So if we can identify that fructose is really a problem for you. Great news. There's an enzyme that you can take when you eat fructose, right? right? If we determine that, you know, uh, a certain oligosaccharide in onions and garlic is a really big gas and bloating trigger for you. Great news. There's two new products on the market now that have an enzyme for fructans that you can take when you eat those foods. Whereas if we determine that polyol, sorbitol, mannitol are a problem for you, bad news. No enzyme for that. Those are foods that you can either knowingly eat and feel crappy or avoid and feel better. And so I can, when I know what FODMAPs bother you, I can help you navigate your diet to what you need to avoid, what you need to take a supplement with, um, what you can eat freely. And so that's kind of how we would use a low FODMAP protocol to help people figure out gas, bloating, and diarrhea issues. So I have a protein powder that I absolutely love and it has, and I never feel well if I have a whey protein powder. So I always use um, a vegan protein powder and it is filled with high FODMAP things, filled. So I went online and I started looking for low FODMAP um, protein powders. And there seem to be a few, but there's also some conflicting information about, um, about certain protein powders and like pea protein, because I got one, I think it's called, um, gut love or tum love or something like that. And it's all low FODMAP. But I think I also read maybe in your book that pea protein is moderate to high FODMAP, but this one is all pea protein. So is pea protein higher than FODMAP? So it depends. So the issue with protein powders specifically is whether it's a concentrate or an isolate. Right. So a whey protein isolate, a soy protein isolate, a pea protein isolate should all be low FODMAP. But a whey protein concentrate can be high FODMAP. It'll have a lot more lactose. A soy protein concentrate will have a lot more of the gassy soybean in it, not just the isolated protein. So generally speaking, protein isolates are much, are probably going to be safe. Whereas like a generic pea protein, if they don't say that it's isolate, it probably will have some concentrate in it and it may or may not be low FODMAP. And so, you know, my best advice is if you're trying to navigate protein powders, choose isolates from whatever source you choose. Collagen will always be low FODMAP. Mm. Um, you know, a rice protein will always be low FODMAP. Like a pumpkin seed protein will be low FODMAP. Hemp protein is low FODMAP. And then you're looking for products that really are pretty much just the protein, maybe like a little bit of like a cocoa powder, like a cocoa or like a vanilla flavor. If it has a sweetener, you're looking for like a stevia kind of thing. And like, that's it. When you have a protein powder with a thousand different ingredients, almost certainly it's going to have a lot of like added, you know, like higher FODMAP fibers. Anything that says prebiotic runs screaming. That's going to be really FODMAP. (laughs) Um, Damn it! You know, so there should be plenty and they're not all going to be labeled low FODMAP. Like, you know, there's like a whey protein isolate from a company that, you know, that I recommend. And it has like whey protein isolate. Like I think like sunflower, lecithin, vanilla, and that's it. And like, they don't claim low FODMAP, but like I read that ingredient list, like that's low FODMAP. And so I can also help my patients steer to that. Even if a company hasn't invested in getting like certification and paid the money to get the certification, there's actually a lot of products out there. They're just the simpler products that just have like an isolate and maybe like a flavor and like that. Is there a vegan protein that you recommend off the top of your head? Like a brand? That's low FODMAP? I mean, I believe that like the naked pea, like the naked company has like a pea protein isolate, which yeah. should be fine. Right. Um, and I, oh God, I can't remember like the brand names, but there's a couple of like pea, uh, pumpkin seed proteins. I think Nutiva makes a hemp protein that doesn't have anything in it. Um, and it tastes uh, so good. Oh, and Nutribiotic, Nutribiotic does um, a brown rice protein that's vegan and that's low FODMAP. Nice. So, I mean, there's, there's options. Like there's actually a lot of options. Like so, it shouldn't be hard. To so one of the things that you mentioned is, 
it might be hard to eat that huge, big salad filled with all of that roughage. <laughs> but if it's broken down into those micro particles, like in a juice or something, then that will be a lot easier for you to digest. What are your thoughts on something, even even if it's flow, even if it's high FODMAP? So like, let's take all of the rage right now on social media is something like Athletic Greens or Amazing Grass or all of these concentrates. Am I saying that right? Not concentrates, but compounds, right? It's a mix. It's a mix of things. If you are sensitive to FODMAPs, is that something that you should be avoiding as well, even though it's broken down into such a powdery form? Okay. So we're kind of talking about two different things as the same thing. So breaking things down into like soup form or powder form, whatever, is an issue around bloating from too much fiber and is FODMAP unrelated, right? And then there's the issue of FODMAPs that may have nothing to do with that. But I wonder if a lot of times this coincides and crosses over. So generally speaking, greens, like leafy vegetables are actually all low FODMAP for the most part. So people who feel bloated after eating a lot of leafy greens, it's much more likely to be a fiber issue than a FODMAP issue because like, unless you eat like a large amount of kale, like large amounts of kale can be high FODMAP and large amounts of cabbage, but pretty much all other greens are low FODMAP, even in high amounts. Hmm. So if you feel crappy after eating like lots of salads and greens, it's almost, almost certainly not a FODMAP issue. It's a fiber issue. Um, But going back to your question around some of those athletic greens powders, this and that, if fiber and bulk and roughage is your bloating problem, yes, those will probably feel better. The problem is almost every single one of those products has inulin or chicory root in it, which is like a FODMAP bomb. Really? And so, why? So, oh, why like that, like that, it? like they uh, in and of themselves are high FODMAP. They well, they the add an ingredient is. to the green powders I see. I as see. a healthy prebiotic. Yes, but that actually makes it really gassy for susceptible people. And so, you know, if somebody was coming to me and they're really gassy and bloated and I saw that they were doing most of those products, I would switch. And there's like one or two greens powders I found that don't have um, inulin added. And I'll be just try this brand instead if you want to do a greens powder. But like most of the brands do contain inulin or chicory root, which is like an extremely high FODMAP ingredient. That's so I know my favorite protein has chicory root in it. I know it. Darn it. But it may or may not bother you, right? Like it's not, a, it's not bad for you. Like FODMAPs sure. are actually healthy. Like that's the oh, thing. Oh, yes. Like, this comes back to that, uh, like this tension, this natural tension between things that can be objectively healthy for you, but also just feel crappy in your body. And also right? do and- you feel like, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but like the devil is in the dose. So I think sure. that as, um, as a society where we're just so used to eating any fruit that we want, regardless of whether or not it's in season, Um, you know, we have our favorites. So you have that berry smoothie over and over and over and over and over, but then you've wound up having 6,000 pounds of berries or like I'm addicted to cherries, addicted to cherries and mangoes. Those are super, super, super high FODMAP. So I could probably get away with having, you know, a a half of a cup of them every so often, but certainly not every day. That's a hundred percent right. Right. Like, again, like FODMAPs are objectively nourishing for your gut microbiome, right? When they're fermenting them, they are growing and sustaining themselves and having like a happy gut microbiome life. So it's not like I'm suggesting at all that like a strict low FODMAP diet is somehow healthier. It's not. Um, The issue is how do you understand which FODMAPs bother you? And then to your point, Andrea, how much of them can you get away with and still feel okay? So Mm -hmm. for you, that might be like a small bowl of cherries feels fine. And if you do a small bowl of cherries, you know, once a day, you can eat cherries all season long. Whereas, you know, if you like completely OD on the cherries, they make you like horribly sick, horribly bloated. And then you adopt an all or nothing mentality and tell yourself, well, I just, I can't eat cherries. Cherries are horrible. Cherries are, you know, kryptonite for me. They're, we lack a lot of nuance when we talk about food in our society and it's like all or nothing, like good food, bad food, like can eat it, can't eat it. And like, there is for most people <laughs> a middle ground yes. that if you're patient and committed to the process, you can figure out. One of the things that I'm obsessed with how you discuss is the topic of supplements and probiotics. And would you mind giving the listeners just a quick overview of your take on those two topics? 
I mean, look, I'm not a pill pusher. I'm not a big supplement pusher. I think that there is a small handful of evidence-based supplements that can be game-changing for someone with GI issues. And when there is good evidence for something that is safe and effective, I am all over it. So I do recommend supplements, certain supplements in my practice. I love magnesium for my constipated patients. I love enteric-coated peppermint oil for my crampy patients, right? I love... um you know, FD guard is a caraway seed and peppermint oil for my patients with that functional dyspepsia, that over fullness when they, you know, when they eat small amounts. Um, you know, I love certain enzymes. There's enzymes called FODMATE and FODZYME, which are FODMAP directed enzymes so that people don't have to restrict their diets. Like, and the, like, these are kind of the products that allow you to eat garlic and onions without feeling horrible. And so there, there are some great supplements out there that I recommend. So I'm not anti-supplement. But I am definitely anti, you know, convincing people that, you know, taking two dozen, three dozen supplements a day and these protocols are somehow curing them or healing their gut or, you know, because when you have a GI problem, taking two dozen or three dozen pills a day is almost certainly making the problem worse, not better. Right. Um, And I don't sell supplements. I think that it's a conflict of interest for somebody to make money off of the recommendation that they are making to you. I just find that that's ethically problematic. So I don't sell any products. Mm-hmm. If I think a patient will benefit from a product, I will recommend it. Awesome. Um, and I'm evidence-based. And so like, if people want to like try to cure their gut with all these herbals, whatever, you know, like, what can I tell you? I'm like, I am not going to tell you to spend $500 on an herbal protocol that there's no evidence for. Well, or, and not know, people- only that, but if you're taking all those things, you don't know which one is actually helping or hurting. Yeah. Right. So I think that for certain people, a well-chosen supplement or two can like make a huge difference. And also I think that it is, it's gotten to a point with, you know, kind of certain realms of the wellness world where it's a supplement scam, right? Like people are sending their kids to college by selling you hundreds, if not thousands of dollars of supplements a month. And it becomes really scammy. I think at a certain point, um, I have been doing this for 13 years, just GI for 13 years. And there's no more than a dozen different supplements that are in my toolkit. And that toolkit has expanded a tiny bit, Mm -hmm. you know, in the past couple of years, but like, you know, most people can get better with zero to two supplements. Yeah. And so what about probiotics? There are very, very limited number of evidence-based indications for probiotics. And the more research I see about probiotics, the less I get about them, to be honest. And so there are certain conditions where very specific probiotics have been shown to have a benefit. And I think that that's a really important piece of nuance that people miss. Like we talk about probiotics, like they're all one thing. The term probiotics is as generic as the term vitamins. Mm -hmm. So if someone with a GI issue comes to me and says, should I take a probiotic? It's almost like you coming to me and saying like, should I take a vitamin? Well, which vitamin? What are we trying to fix here? If you have a vitamin B12 deficiency, taking a vitamin D is going to do nothing for you. Right. Same thing with a probiotic. If you have this condition and that has not been shown to be benefited by any probiotics in science, taking some random probiotic isn't going to do anything for you. Or if you do have a condition, like, so for example, there are some people um, who've like had their colons removed from ulcerative colitis and then the residual colon can get really inflamed. That's called pouchitis. There's some really good evidence that a very specific probiotic helps with pouchitis. So if you have that problem and you come to me and you're looking for a solution, I'm going to tell you, buy this very specific probiotic. I'm not going to say, go to the drugstore, find some random probiotic on the shelf and try taking it. Right. Right. Um, And so probiotics in order to be effective need to be the right probiotic for the right job. And there are so few conditions that research has shown are benefited by probiotics that in all honesty, they're a very small part of my toolkit. I recommend them sometimes to certain people, but it is definitely not a top 10 recommendation in my practice. Are there any, you know, as we start to wind down, are there any like general truths, like avoid this, don't do that, do this. Are there any general truths that come to mind for you when talking about overall GI health, bloating, that kind of thing? I mean, for overall gut health, the general truth is we want to see people eating 
you know, as diverse types of fiber as they can comfortably tolerate. But that is a very different equation for every person. We know that the microbiome thrives on fiber and not just numbers and grams of fiber. Like it's not like you can just take 30 grams in a supplement and you're doing great things for you. The diversity of your diet matters, right? Different fibers nourish different gut microbes. And we see that the most healthy, diverse microbiomes are the most resilient. When I say resilient, I mean that if you get an infection, you bounce right back. If you take an antibiotic, you bounce right back. You know, if you get exposed to like the norovirus, like, you know, your, your normal gut microbiome, like is bounces right back. That resilience is really important for fighting like pathogenic bacteria and preventing them from kind of getting a foothold. So we know that dietary diversity yields the healthiest microbiomes and the approach that so many people like in the, in the wellness space take for gut health is the opposite of diversity. They take the elimination diet approach being like, oh, the reason your, your gut is so messed up is because of all these toxic things you're eating. So you need to cut out grains and now you need to cut out legumes and you should cut out nightshades and you should cut out corn and you should cut out soy and they cut, 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 cut. And that whittles the diet down to a very non-diverse. You're just eating leafy vegetables, a couple of berries and protein. From a gut microbiome perspective, that's not good. It's not favorable. Right. Losing dietary diversity is not favorable for gut health. Mm. And so, you know, when you come at the idea and the picture of gut health with an elimination diet mindset, rather than maybe something that I'm not eating enough of, maybe my lack of diversity is the problem, not, you know, not like the fact that I am eating diversely, you know, it's a different mindset. And so, and then within that, it's, okay, well, what is the diversity and the amount of fiber that feels good in my body? And again, for everyone that's different, right? For someone who has no GI problems, the sky's the limit. They could eat 60 grams of fiber, 50 different plants a week, all the kale in the world and feel amazing and just poop, keep up with it. They feel great. Then that's objectively healthy and go for it. Mm. And if that's not you, you don't beat yourself up about it. Let's work on what is the comfortable amount of variety that you can tolerate. And maybe for you, we get to 20 different plant species a week, but we're doing a lot of that in soups and smoothies that are blended. Mm-hmm. And so it's just gentler, but you still get the nutrition and the diversity. And so it's doing the best you can with the body that you have and not being dogmatic and one size fits all um, about diet in general. Tamara, I'm obsessed with you. <laughs> <laughs> If I had known that you were going to be obsessed with me, I would have put on makeup today, Andrea. I feel so bad. (laughs) No, don't. You're beautiful and you're amazing. All right, guys, we're going to start to wind it down. So this is the book. It's The Bloated Belly Whisperer. She leads with this quiz. And please, also- Oh, you also have- yeah. Regular. Also, I haven't gotten to read this yet. This just showed up in my mail, but this is her new book called Regular, which I'm sure is going to be wonderful too. Um, Tamara, how else can people find you? So you can find me on my website, thebloatedbellywhisperer.com. I love that name. Thank you. And on the website, you can get free copies of the quizzes from both my books, the Bloated Belly Whisperer quiz and the regular quiz. You can take the quiz for free and see if anything kind of pops out at you. Mm -hmm. Um, And if that piques your interest, Um, you can also find me on Instagram at um, the Bloated Belly Whisperer um, and um, on Twitter at Tamara Duker. Are you most active there on Twitter? Yeah, for now. I mean, who knows what's happening with Twitter, but yeah, I'm like a little old school and so yeah. a little bit more of like, I don't see you much person. on Instagram. Yeah. I don't see you much on Instagram. Yeah. I'm more of a word person than a picture person. Yeah. Um, not a digital, especially native. like poops and constipation and all that. Yeah. Nobody also, yeah. Nobody like wants to see those pictures anyway. Um, but you know, I'm on like, I'm online. I've written 300 and something articles for us news. Chances are if you Google a symptom and the name Tamara, like something will come up that I've written about your problem. Yeah. Um, so I'm pretty on, like, I'm pretty findable. Thank you so much for being here. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. Um, So that is it for us today. I hope you found this episode helpful. And if you know someone who struggles with bloat, please share this episode, pass it along to them. Also, I would be so grateful if you'd write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or leave the show some stars on Spotify. Reviews really help the growth of the show tremendously. Also, please don't hesitate to DM me on Instagram at Andrea Barkley or email me at ab at andreabarkley.com. And what would you give to have a renowned personal trainer in your pocket that you have direct access to without the big time and financial investment? Join the Daily Motivator, my personal text community where I send action items each weekday morning with specific exercise 
and nutrition homework. I'll be rooting for you and clapping for you before you even get out of bed. If you need some motivation, visit andreaberkeley.com slash motivate to get started. Thanks so much for being here. Have a healthy and wonderful day, and I will see you next time.